Hello and welcome to Unbreak Your Health, the podcast program about the world of hope and health known as complementary and alternative medicine. I'm Alan Smith in Plano, Texas, author of Unbreak Your Health, and today our topic is mindfulness. And our guest is Dr. Karen Sherman, a New York psychologist with over 20 years of experience and the author of a new book, Mindfulness and the Art of Choice, Transform Your Life. She's also the co-author of Marriage Magic, Find It, Keep It, and Make It Last. I remember from researching my book that there were two kinds of mindfulness in Buddhism called Vipassana and Samantha. And the first means insight or full awareness of what's happening, and the latter is considered concentration or tranquility. So the concept of mindfulness really has evolved from rather ancient roots, hasn't it? It has. It has. But I think that for me... The first definition would be more applicable because my belief is that most people really are not insightful of what they're doing. They're reacting very automatically, and that behavior is not getting them what they really want in life. What is the general meaning of mindfulness? Well, for me, it's really the idea of knowing what you're doing and then making choices in your life of not just, um, as I said before, reacting. So much of what we do, unfortunately, is habitual, out of our control. But, you know, when you're mindful, you are observing, you are aware, you are proactive, And that is what I believe will allow people to step out of uh, patterns that they've been doing all their lives and allow them to then have a life where they're actually making choices in their life that will suit them. Or and, And if it doesn't suit them, at least to be able, again, to look at those choices and explore and observe what was not, you know, working out well for them and then make another choice. We've come a long way since John Kabat-Zinn got the ball rolling 30 mm-hmm. years ago with his stress reduction mm-hmm. clinic at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. You know, Back then he had to call it stress reduction because nobody even wanted to have anything to do with him as anything exotic as mindfulness. So we're making mm-hmm. some progress, aren't we? Yes, we are. He's wonderful, isn't he? I, one of the things that he says when I heard him speak is he said that, um, you know, when you're in the shower – what is a shower really about? It's about water and soap. And so many of us, when we're in the shower, are thinking about, you know, why did he say that to me or what am I going to wear today or, you know, things like that. And that's the whole point, that we're in a fog most of the time or we're we're not present. And I don't believe, again, that especially in our relationships, we're not Although we don't realize it, we're not really functioning in our relationships in in the present. So often things that have happened to us in the past are getting triggered and we're reacting thinking that it is really because of something that just happened when in fact it really is an implicit memory, something from the past that you can't get your hands around that has just gotten set off. So um, I love John Kabat-Zinn. <laughs> Yeah, his MBSR therapy, or Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, focuses heavily on meditation. So yes, I have to ask yes, the question, is mindfulness and meditation the same thing? I don't necessarily think so. I think that meditation certainly is a practice that helps you to be more mindful. But as I said, 
you know, as I was offering these tools to people, I don't necessarily believe that you must meditate in order to become mindful. On the other hand, I do believe that it's really important to become aware of your body and that so many of us are cut off at the necks and, you know, are just constantly getting uh, drowned in our thoughts. Thoughts that we're not even aware that we're having. We're like, I think somebody did a study where it's like 6,000 thoughts a day that you're having that you're not even aware of, or maybe it was 60,000, some absurd number. But the point is that, again, you're, you're not aware, you're not present. So for me, mindfulness and being present can occur by really staying focused. Now, obviously, when one meditates, you learn the practice of staying focused. It helps you get there. But I don't think that you have to meditate in order to become mindful of your day-to-day living and experiences. There seems to be a lot of kind of shades of gray in all of this. Is there a difference between mindfulness and simply being aware, or is mindfulness just another way of saying conscious living Well, I think you're right, Alan. I think there are shades of gray. You know, for me, I think probably some people would say, you know, they're the same. I make a slight distinction. I think that I want to see something a little bit more proactive with mindfulness, that, you know, you could be aware that you're feeling a sensation in your body, but that doesn't mean that you then mindfully go about observing what that's about for you. So I do make that distinction. I don't know that other people would necessarily. But, you know, to me, awareness is not enough in order to help you in this process that I'm talking about therapeutically to get you to a change process. You mentioned being in the shower earlier. I've heard Mm -hmm. mindfulness being compared to something that you can do just walking down the street. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, that's another one. That, that John Kabat-Zinn talks about, that when you are walking down the street, really being, you know, aware, and there's the term aware, of your surroundings, seeing, let's say it's a beautiful spring day, seeing the trees, hearing the birds, you know, noticing the aroma of the grass, but it's being present in the moment, not anticipating what's coming, not dwelling on what was but really being in the moment. So, yeah. And that's what I like so much about his work is because he talks about everyday living kinds of um, situations. Wouldn't it be kind of a shortcut to say that mindfulness is kind of the exact opposite of our 24-7 multitasking world that we live in today? I think that's a great way to put it. I think it's a wonderful way to put it. I would not thought of it that way. And if you don't mind, I'm going to borrow that because I think that's a really great way to put it. (laughs) Not a problem. Mindfulness actually produces physical results, though, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. It does cut down on your stress, and we know that stress produces all sorts of physiological changes in the body as far as hormones and such. Blood pressure decreases. So being able to have your body in a more relaxed state is physically healthy. And psychologically, when you're not tight and tense, you can respond to situations in a much easier way. You also have the ability to calmly explore different opportunities and possibilities. I will share with you a little anecdote, which I think to me really says it all. Several years ago, 
I was entertaining. We had a family over, and this particular friend is very maternal and very aware of safety. And so we were having this barbecue, and it was up on our our deck, and suddenly flames were shooting out of the uh, barbecue. So instinctively, she grabs her daughter's hand and tells her daughter to grab my two daughters' hands, and she now starts to run. But she's so nervous that she's now running in front of the barbecue, endangering the children. So her stress and her panic really overrode her clear thinking. And so that's what I'm saying, you know, that if you're upset, if you're uptight, if you're tense, you're not going to be able to flow with the situation. You're not going to be able to really assess and make your best decisions. I know from my own background and and health problems, Mindfulness kind of caught my attention because I'd heard that it also is great to produce health benefits for GI stress and sleep disturbances, chronic pain. There's just a whole list of physical ailments that mindfulness can be very beneficial for. Oh, absolutely. We're getting more and more research about, you know, the benefits of, you know, mindfulness slash meditation, you know, more and more. And, and doctors, the the traditional medical doctors are now finally on board and acknowledging that it's a really good thing for people to be practicing more of these types of of, um, support systems in their lives. You know that there was research that actually showed that if high-powered executives meditated for nearly five minutes a day, that's all, five minutes a day, they had far less heart attacks than other comparable you know, CEOs in in their field. That's a rather dramatic uh, jump. Yeah. Listeners, if you're enjoying this podcast, then you'll love my new book. The second edition of How to Unbreak Your Health is your map to the world of complementary and alternative therapies. It features a new user-friendly format and 339 new and updated listings in 150 different categories. And you can get it on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Karen, your new book, Mindfulness and the Art of Choice, is the product not only of your professional knowledge and experience, but also from your own personal experiences of a very dysfunctional childhood, isn't it? Yes, it is. I had really hit a very, very rough spot in my life based on the having to face the shattering of of a lifelong dream that I had based on the realization that I was never really going to have the mother of my dreams. My whole life, I had believed that what stopped the relationship was uh, a domineering father. And he passed away, and I thought, oh, goody, now I can finally have my mother. And he was really very abusive, so I know that sounds terrible to say that he passed away, oh, goody, but it really was. He was very toxic. And for a while... Just a couple of weeks, my mother and I really enjoyed one another, and then I went to visit her and realized that she was emotionally void and that all those years, it was not just that he interfered, but that she was not available. And so that set me off into a horrible, horrible depression, and the pain was really, really terrible. I didn't know if I wanted to sustain it at one point, but clearly I did. And with the help of a wonderful therapist, I learned some tools And those tools were different than traditional talk therapy. I started to use them with my clients, 
found them to be very useful and then felt, you know, I've got to be able to let other people know about this. And so that's what provoked my writing the book. Do you find that people are hesitant to explore or go back to the things that happened to them in the past? Oh, absolutely, because it's painful. But, you know, what I try to explain to people is that when there is something that has happened to us, especially as children, we store that memory. We store it as a child. And so then when, as an adult, you go back to look at it, it's like, ooh, I don't want to touch that. You know, that's painful. But if you were to go back to a room, you know, that's like a kindergarten room, you see those little chairs and they, you look at them as an adult and you say, oh, they're so cute. But, you know, when we were kids, they weren't cute. They, they fit right. So it's a matter of perspective. And so what I try to let people know is that, yeah, it's going to hurt a little bit, but that when you're willing to face that pain and embrace it and dance with it, so to speak, it does transform. And that really does allow you to start to heal it. So, you know, a moment ago I said that these tools are different than traditional talk therapy because what I was finding was talk therapy gives you insight into, you know, what your problems were and, you know, why your parents may have acted the way they did or what experiences occurred to you. But what happens is you've stored up these experiences that were painful to you in your body. And if those experiences are not released in some kind of a sensory motor way, then they still have their energy that are being stored. And so then when somebody says or doesn't say or does or doesn't do something that triggers it, you're reacting and you're thinking that it's happening in that moment, but it's really that it has set off something from the past. And again, unless you work on healing that, it's just going to keep coming up over and over again. Can you give us some examples of how to look for these old emotional connections? Oh, absolutely. That's a great question. Because, you know, in life there's going to be times where there's going to be things that happen where there's going to be misunderstandings or something. But what I've noticed is that when it's this kind of a reaction, there are three things that happen. Number one, the person reacts in a nanosecond. It's very immediate. The second is that it's very intense. It's far more of an intense reaction than what would be expected for the situation. And the third is that no matter what you try to do to explain to the person having the reaction as to where the miscommunication was or where the misunderstanding was, the person can't let it go. And so when I see those three things, I know that it's really hooking into something else from the past, and that's why they can't let it go. What are some of the tools in your book to rewire these old connections? Well, there are two main tools that I use. One is that I use heavily is visualization. When you visualize, you can create anything you want in your memory. So what I do is I walk people through remembering the situation that was upsetting to them. So you might start out with what just set you off now, but then there's a way to get back to the old memory. And so what that does is it reactivates the old memory. And then through the visualization, we create a new ending. Now, research has shown that when you are in that active state, if you interrupt it with an inconsistent or a different reaction, the brain is actually making a new connection. So by creating a different ending to an old situation, you make a new neural connection. 
Now, that's the simplistic version of it. But you're, over time, it's, it's not a one-shot deal. I don't want to, you know, make it sound to your audience like, you know, this is an overnight quick bullet. But over time, this does heal. And then the facts are the facts. You can't change the facts, but there's no more energy around it. The second tool is free association writing, which is where you write as fast as you possibly can. The reason that you do that is because you don't want your thought process. You want your emotions to come out. So even if you're writing and you run out of things to say, you never pick your pen up. You write, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, until it more gets blurted out. And there's two purposes here. One is that in the writing, once you're writing it and getting it out of your system, it's not in your system. So there's some release there. The second is very often when you're doing this writing, when you reread it, you will see certain things that you might not have known. Again, because it's, it's almost like um, an emotional purging or vomiting, if you will. So by bypassing the thought process, you get more, you know, awareness of, of what it is that may be going on for you emotionally. And then you can work with that visually as well. Why do you think these tools are so effective? Well, because, again, you're getting to the real root of where the problem was and you're releasing it at an energetic level. You're attending to the leftover upset from childhood and at the same time you're also rewiring the neurons in your brain. So the combination of those two allows you to no longer react the way you have automatically because those other reactions that I was explaining to you, those are automatic. You know, people will tell you that they almost feel like they were possessed and it's like they are possessed. You call your book The Art of Choice. I have to Mm -hmm. ask, why do you refer to it as an art rather than a science? Well, because I think of science as something that's very precise and, you know, like if you were buying a cookbook, the cookbook would tell you, you know, add in two cups of this and a quarter of a spoon of that. And the book is not laid out that way because everybody has their own life, their own process, their own journey. So I feel that what I'm offering instead is more sort of a a guide to help one get through their process. But I cannot lay it out really, really specifically because each person is different and, and they have to adapt it and honor their own process. And so that's why I felt it was more appropriate to say art as opposed to science. So what's the first step in making a change? Well, the first step in making a change is being self-observant, which is hard to do because you can't ever make a change unless you know that there's something to change. So what I tell people is you have to see, are you noticing a pattern that you always get upset at a certain kind of situation? Do you find that um, you're having trouble at jobs all the time? You know, if you're having trouble at every kind of job or every kind of social situation, then it can't always be the situations. It's got to be you because you're the common theme that is running across those different situations. If you end up dating the same kind of person all the time, even though you think that they look different, again, there's got to be something there. So the first thing is awareness that it's you. And then after that, I really feel the next place to go is to your body because your body is your barometer. Anytime you're feeling something emotional, 
there's always going to be a physical sensation that goes with the emotion. But again, as I you know said before, most of us aren't aware of that. So once we can learn how to be aware of our bodies, when you notice that there's something going on in your body, then you can use that as a window to then start to be more aware of what the emotion is that you're feeling or the situation that's upsetting you, and then continue the work from there. Dr. Sherman, thank you for taking the time to talk with me about mindfulness today. Anyone wanting to learn more about Dr. Karen Sherman and her new book should visit her website at www.drkarensherman.com. You've been listening to the podcast edition of Unbreak Your Health, discovering the world of hope and health known as complementary and alternative medicine. I'll be back soon with another edition, but to learn more about our guest today, please visit the podcast page at www.unbreakyourhealth.com. We'd love to hear from you about this program. Please send your questions and comments to info at unbreakyourhealth.com. This program is a joint production of Unbreak Your Health and Loving Healing Press. Thanks for listening. I'm Alan Smith, and I look forward to being with you again soon.